Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life, and I'm Katie Sewell. I'm a public radio professional. I've been in the business nearly 20 years, though I did do something a little different. A few years ago, I quit my job as the senior producer of a daily two-hour morning show, and I moved to Rome for a year. That's where this show began, as I bumbled my way through my first expat experience, alongside Tiffany Parks. Tiffany is my co-host. She's a childhood friend and an expat living in Rome for about 12 years. She's also a writer, with her first book, Midnight in the Piazza, coming out in March 2018. Well, now I'm back in Seattle, and Tiffany is still in Rome, and we're still exploring, and, well, if you're me at least, you're frequently struggling. This show is a journey. For all of you explorers of the world, traveling or living abroad, permanently or temporarily, reminiscing about when you lived in a different culture, or looking for the next chapter after getting home, I hope you enjoy our company and the international authors, journalists, and expats that join us as guests. If you've never heard the show before, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and come along for the whole journey. Or jump around as soon as you get a sense of things. Most of all, we're really glad you're here. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. We are here in Seattle, leaving you at the cliffhanger last week about what Tiffany did when she first got to the United States. We are also still here with... Someone taking a sip of her wine. Um, Suzanne Morrison. Our good friend. When we think of the trifecta that is... Us. I mean, it's kind of an odd group, really. I think that people in their minds listening to the show automatically put the three of us together. But when you say we're kind of an odd group, a, a collect I mean, we've been friends for a long time, but a strange collective. Yes. Way. Leo, a Scorpio, and uh, a Pisces. I don't know what that means. What would you say that that means? Two water signs and a fire sign. What does that mean? Well, water... Fire is attracted to water. I, I speak for myself. As a fire sign, I want to be around water. I look for water i have never been into the uh horoscope sign thing and you have always been into it well okay i don't want to misrepresent myself i'm not a huge horoscopers i i think it's fun you don't have any crystals around the house (laughs) no no i think it's fun and i you know i also like it on a historic level historic level yeah in uh renaissance rome renaissance italy the horoscope was practiced i mean People who were in the high up in the Catholic Church were they believed in that it was not considered some kind of occult nonsense. It was considered very you know they would consult their horoscope to decide you know when to do things and a lot of uh, important cardinals would have their horoscope painted into the the ceiling of their palace. So I like that. I like to I like art that is inspired by the horoscope. I I like things that have uh, a theme. Like I like seeing paintings that are like the seasons or the months of the year or the signs. So it's not that I sit and read my horoscope and think, okay, I can't do this this week because otherwise my stars will be, you know, mm, not really. I like the trappings of the horoscope. How do you feel about the lion since you're a Leo? It's not my favorite animal, but I like lions and I like felines in general. And, you know, I think anyone who is attracted to the idea of horoscope, whether they believe in it or not, they kind of like their own sign and their own, the representation of their own sign. 
let's say they found out years later that they were a different sign. There was a mistake. Okay, small example. I watched an interview with Nicolas Cage who looked up the calendar of the Chinese horoscope and, and looked at his birth year and found out that he was a dragon and he became obsessed with dragons and, and loved the fact that he was a dragon and had the tiles of his pool like on the bottom, like a huge dragon thing. And then someone told him that actually the Chinese horoscope starts in, in February and he was born in January, so he was actually a rabbit. <laughs> I'm a dragon. I'm a monkey, I think. Yes, you uh, are. We're both snakes, Katie. Okay, fair enough. Let's move on from the horoscopes because that's not what this episode is about. I'm sorry, I even brought it up. No, 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 hang on, though. I, I want to just... Something more interesting. What? We Go. were, but I want to stick with this for one second. Okay. Suzanne, what is a Scorpio? Oh, golly. Oh, golly. Um, <laughs> Tiffany could probably do this better. Let's see. A Scorpio is a person born in October or November. I'm a Scorpio. My husband's a Scorpio. Technically, I think we're known for intensity... I've had a couple of close relationships with Scorpios and my one of my best friends is a Scorpio, you. I've read and I've felt and I've discovered that Scorpios are secretive, but they're also very intuitive. They're very good judges of character, but they're also very suspicious people. Mm. And they are very generally very good in bed. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Katie's dying over here. There's so many. That's true. That's totally all all true. There are so many places we can go from here. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm also having allergies. So I'm not crying. I'm just sniffing. You sound like you're crying. I know. I'm not. This is allergies. Okay. I'm not going to ask you about in bed because your husband doesn't want to be on tape. But but I am going to say secretive, good judges of character. That rings true. Yeah, sure. You, I mean, it, it does. Yeah, I, I would say I'm, for someone who writes a memoir, I'd say I'm actually weirdly private. But I think that's actually true, weirdly true of a lot of people I know who write memoir, that they also have this very strong need to go be alone and keep certain things very close and very private and just for like very specific people that they'll share those things with. So I don't know if that's being a Scorpio or if that's being <laughs> a writer. I guess, but yeah. I guess the real question is like, I'm a Pisces, which is me. You're a little bit go with the flow. As an example, would you say that you also could go with the flow? Is any description you? I would say that under certain circumstances, I will go with the flow. But I would also say that more often than not, I'm more inclined to say, no, I want to go with my flow. (laughs) And um, if this is getting in the way of that, then I need to not do that thing. You know, because I have really specific things I want to do with my time. And so I'm not just going to go along with any sort of flow, I guess. <laughs> okay. But that's probably true of a lot of people, right? Again, that's probably true of lots and lots of people that people prefer to... I mean, some people are very easygoing, right? Yeah. Other people are extremely rigid and don't like to have their routine switched up. I'm somewhere on that spectrum. Can I ask you a really difficult question? Yeah. Why would you say that you chose Tiffany Nye as your friend? And I'm not saying that we're your best friends. We might be. Yeah, I think we are. You guys were my bridesmaids. I mean, yeah, yeah you're my best friend. Well, we're your best friends. We're not necessarily oh, Suzanne's not necessarily best your best friends. <laughs> yeah, Suzanne, Suzanne's cooler than us, as we've already um, established. I'm just saying. We're actually just Suzanne's fangirls. <laughs> Let's just be honest. We're just like, let me tell you, she's incredible. I know. Isn't it true? I know. And all the while, we're like, she's so much better than we are. I know. It's sad. 
She should be on our show all the time. Except she she like doesn't have the patience. She no, listen. our show would be so much better if she was on it all the time. I know. I, I think you need to be back. I think okay, I'll I'll think about it. Okay. So Jen? Well, I mean clearly that's why I'm friends with you, right? She wants to Just kidding. No, I think um apart from this hilarious fangirl thing you guys are on tonight, which is really funny and so not the nature of our friendships, I might add. Um I, we became friends, I think all three of us, in different ways because we didn't become friends at the same time. I became friends with Katie at one period. I became friends with Tiffany in a different period. But I think with both of you, imagination had a lot to do with it. You know, I think that we're, we're all really kind of obsessed with sort of imaginative pursuits when we were young women and we had like very active fantasy lives in our own weird ways. Definitely Tiffany and I had very active fantasy lives and we would spin fantasies for each other like we would sit down on her mom's deck overlooking like washington and we would eat like strawberries well we'd make ourselves a big elaborate dinner but really it was about strawberries and chocolate and whipped cream and and then we would tell each other this sounds like a like some kind of like romance we would have strawberries and chocolate and whipped cream um, we were trying to create that we both had kind of like underwhelming romantic lives in high school <laughs> Uh, especially me especially me and yes we would you know she knew who I was you know crushing on and I knew who she was crushing on and we would actually also sometimes it was just like career stuff <laughs> which is sad kind of like she would like spin me this fantasy about like me singing La Boheme at the Met or something and in terms of the career ones I was actually just writing about this the other day because it was making me laugh so hard who knows if it will make anybody else laugh but me but um I was thinking about the fantasies we would spin for each other that were literally just like career fantasies where Tiffany's singing at La Scala there's some lover or two, usually it was more than one. They were like waiting in the wings, one with jewelry, one with flowers. Um, they're like fighting over who gets to take her out to dinner later. And she's just like, no, I'm just going to see my friend Susie who's in town with her Commedia dell'arte troupe. <laughs> no, 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 no. Wait, what I remember is that in our fantasy, we both lived in Italy yes. and we lived in a villa. We were basically financed by my lover who was wealthy <laughs> and I was an opera singer and you were a writer and you, you know, your lovers were not wealthy because your main lover was a uh, Commedia dell'arte. <laughs> yeah, he was a Commedia dell'arte director, but he supplied the flowers. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what I thought was so funny with the specificity, you know, that like, I think yours was like a patron of the opera, your lover who, you know, furnished the villa for us. Um, but mine was this like <laughs> impoverished, Commedia dell'arte director. Like, what specificity? And also, you know, aim a little higher, Susie. I mean, seriously, aim a little higher. Because that is so not hot. The idea of, like, some guy wearing, like, Renaissance pantaloons and some horrible mask. That's the dude I want to do it with. Like, really? Suzanne Marie? Wow, we're getting so far off track. I, um, <laughs> You're going to get three episodes. I know. Uh, I think that something that unifies us all is that we live in so much fantasy what i can't discern is that if it serves us mm. first of all i do live in italy so <laughs> she lives a fantasy I'm living my fantasy thank you very much um i don't live in a villa paid for by my lover but that's okay <laughs> um i think that fantasy is very important especially for young people it, it gives you the freedom to think about what it is that you want for your life and to let yourself go all out. Hey, why not? 
you know, why should I live small? Why shouldn't I dream about this? And you think about things long enough and you can make them real. And if you don't think about them, if you close that off because you think it's impossible, then you have almost no chance of making that happen. And the worst case scenario is that you're disappointed. But I think that that's a small risk when you consider that if you don't reach for the things that you want, you have no chance of getting them. I totally agree. Again, I think that was something that bonded all of us was that we were willing to actually really think outside of, you know, let's just go live on the east side and have a house and a normal life. I mean, we really kind of spurred each other on as girls, you know, where we were like, yeah, you can live abroad or yeah, you can be a writer. And and we really were not going to compromise any of those things, at least not in our imaginations at that age. And of course, then as we've gotten older, I mean, I think the, the test of the friendship is that we keep returning to each other, renewing the friendship. It continues to be important and it continues to grow with time because now we've all had disappointments. I mean, so we've all chosen somewhat unconventional career paths and we've all had our disappointments. We've all had things that haven't worked out the way we wanted them to. And then we've had some things that have or that have surprised us with their working out, whether it's a book deal or a podcast or a radio career. And I think that that's what I'm really grateful for in a long friendship with you two is that we're able to talk about these things every step of the way. So we were able to talk about it when we were young, when it was just purely imaginative and hopeful and really had no basis in reality. You know, we really didn't totally understand what was going to be required of us if we were going to have these these lives that we dreamed of you know what's it really like to to be a writer to actually have to sit down at your desk every day it's actually not that romantic (laughs) in practice right and and so was opera right it's a whole lot of work theater same thing it's a ton of work all of these things have these moments that are glamorous or that are I mean I remember walking home I was living in New York I had just done the final dress rehearsal for my one woman show in New York City and I was walking home from the subway and I had this moment and I was so anxious about opening night and I was so nervous but I had this moment it was this beautiful moment on the streets of New York where I was like I'm here I'm doing the thing I said I was gonna do like I'm performing my own show that I wrote in a theater in Manhattan I'm doing it tomorrow night. I feel like I'm going to throw up, but I'm doing it, you know, and it was, you don't get that many moments, right? Like most of it's like a lot of work, a lot of stress, a lot of hope, a lot of anxiety, a lot of waiting. Patience is required to be in the arts in any way. But when you do have those moments, it's so amazing. And so I feel like as friends, we've been able to share a lot of those moments over the years something not working out or something is like almost there, but it's not there yet or whatever. But then also some of those moments where you're like, Gosh, I like getting notes from you from Katie, like when my book came out and when Tiffany came to see my show in England. And those are pretty amazing things to have with friends from my perspective. Yeah, well, (laughs) it happened for me yesterday. One of those moments because I walked into the offices of Harper and Collins for a meeting with my editor and I was pinching myself the entire time because I couldn't believe that I i mean it just like Suzanne said I didn't grow up desiring to be a writer I wanted to be an opera singer uh, but I did write from the time I was very young I, 
wrote in journals and I wrote letters uh, to Suzanne and Katie. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was just me, but I just kind of assumed that like one day our letters would be published in a book. <laughs> I think we all did. I think that's the arrogance of all of us. Yeah, we're incredibly arrogant. Uh, but at the same time, as much as I had this kind of incredible hubris as a child, as a adult young adult and not so young adult you get a little more a dose of reality and you think you're basically crap and <laughs> no thank god in some no. ways i mean I'm, I'm kind of exaggerating but you know you think oh i you know me you know little me like what will i ever accomplish you know especially especially for the performing arts or the arts in general you think ah there's so many people out there doing it so many people who are better than me so walking into that office what did it look like when you walked in? It's down in lower Manhattan, almost uh, as low as Wall Street. It is an old building. It's one of those old sort of historic turn-of-the-century buildings. And when I walked into the office on the 22nd floor, there was a huge wall of books, double-story high. Books everywhere, everywhere, just everywhere you look. I mean, and if you're a book person, it's like, oh my God, you get giddy. You're like, oh my God, books, books, <laughs> gorgeous books. My editor met me. She came immediately as soon as I arrived. Can we ask what her name yes. is? Yes, her name is Kristen Pettit. Okay. She's an um, executive editor of children's books at HarperCollins. And she was just so warm and sweet and welcoming i just couldn't believe it it was like i said pinching yourself the whole time could this possibly be me having this experience why did they want to meet with you well she said to me you know she said you know it's it's not necessary for you to come to new york and meet with us but it would be a really good idea if you did particularly the marketing department like the more that they have a night like a face to put with a name and to put with the book and they know who you are they'll want to promote your book more. They'll want to put more work into the promotion of the book and they'll get a different sort of spin on it once they've met you. I wanted to meet her. I wanted to meet my editor because it's a very personal relationship and it's nice to actually have had that actual one-on-one -on -one contact. I also wanted to meet my agent who I had never met, although we have been working together since January of 2015. So, you know, it's been a while and I hadn't met him. So... Since I knew I was going to be coming to the States to visit family and see you guys, well, that was actually a side note. That was a side note that ended up being wonderfully serendipitous. I said, well, you know, I'm just going to go to New York for a couple of days beforehand. So while I was in the office, people just started showing up. Just people started entering the office. And, you know, one was the, you know, she was the, dealt with foreign rights. And another one was the, uh, the copy editor. And another one, I mean, all of these titles that I honestly, like, they kind of went, in one ear and out the other because I was so just ecstatic at the way that these people were treating me. They were treating me like I was someone. Every single one of them just came in there and said, thank you so much for working with us and in, in your, letting us work with your book. As if they were, it's as if I were doing them a favor, you know, as opposed to the other way around. And I just- Which in a way you are. I know, I think it's, I think it's the sort of, when you're a first-time writer or an, an aspiring writer, it doesn't matter how ambitious you are or how much you believe in yourself. You get so much rejection. Mm -hmm. Just as um, I mean, I mean, maybe there are people who don't, but <laughs> most of us get a lot of rejection from agents. And then 
eventually, even once we have agents from, you know, from publishers and it becomes just a fact of life. It becomes like, you know, how can I get someone to give me a chance? It's not only has someone given you a chance, but they are so happy to be working with you. It's al it almost seems unreal and not, and you know, a dream, a dream come true really. So many people <laughs> who listen to us are artists of some kind. I think that so much of what we're looking for is this validation that somebody goes, this is worthwhile. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly validating. That's the perfect word for it. I mean, all artists have to deal with this. But I think writers, we sit in a room by ourselves. It's such a solitary work. And you sit there and you wonder, is anyone ever going to read this? <laughs> and you, you know, you're, you're like agonizing over one clause <laughs> and for an hour sometimes and you know is anyone ever going to read this and you just have to have faith that they will but once you find out that somebody is reading this it's it doesn't matter how confident you are maybe i'm just talking about myself but it doesn't matter how confident you are and how much you believe in yourself when that happens when that switch happens it's almost impossible to believe and when my editor was telling me about how the editor-in-chief had read my book and how they had all, you know, every single person from the head of marketing to the head of sales to the head of this to the head of that and uh, millions, you know, millions, no, dozens of different very important people in the publishing house had read and discussed and talked about and, and debated about different aspects of my book, you feel like, I don't know. You just feel like this, me? Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> like, are you sure you weren't like talking about someone else? It went from being me and Suzanne and you to being like 35 people. 35 people, people in positions of power. Yeah, who happen to be some of the most important and influential people in the publishing world. Right. And it's incredibly flattering and validating and exciting. Yeah. So, so when is your book coming out, for God's sake? <laughs> I have a thing about dates. I don't know if it's exactly numerology, although I like the idea of numerology to like get back to the horoscope thing. I don't know anything about numerology, but I like the idea of it. But I have a thing with dates, and I, I have a very good memory for dates, and I connect dates to historic events, and I will invent reasons for certain dates being lucky. My agent first contacted me and offered me representation on the 6th of January, which is the epiphany. So that was very, I considered that very auspicious. And my book was sold, or let's say we had an offer from HarperCollins on St. Patrick's Day of 2016, which I also consider auspicious. And the publication of my book is set for the 6th of March, 2018 which is Michelangelo's birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. That's so perfect for you yeah. and perfect for your book. Yeah. I mean, Michelangelo does not feature in my book at all, but you know, Michelangelo is, uh, is hugely important for my uh, professional life, but that's another story. Who did make the fountain that features so prominently in your story? Giacomo della Porta, but the turtles were added by Bernini. Well, supposedly. They, we don't know this for a fact, but that's what people believe. That Bernini added the turtles, but that the fountain itself was done by Giacomo della Porta. Do you want to give a description of what people would expect from your book? 
Yes, absolutely. So it's a book for younger readers, but that doesn't mean that older readers would not enjoy it. I personally, and not just because I write middle grade fiction, but I think even long before I even considered the idea of writing it, I love reading it. It's fiction for readers from about the ages of eight or nine to 12 or 13, give or take a few years on each end. And for me, you know, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E., Frank Waller. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that was the kind of spark that really started it for me and for my, my passion for that genre. But I think that people who are older can really appreciate those books at the same time. I still read them and not just because I write them, but also because I really enjoy them. There's a purity to that age group and a sense of, sense of adventure and a sense of fun and a sense of mystery that I think... Like just a slight like childlike rebellion. It's not um, it's not like what's going to come later in life, but there's just this adventurous spirit yeah, that's you know almost every middle grade book you're going to have the protagonist lying to their parents or their caregivers about what what's going on and what they're doing, keeping keeping secrets. But uh, the book is set in Rome in the present day, and it is about a uh, adolescent girl who is American, who is a, an expat living in Rome, and she witnesses a crime against art, and no one believes her. The crime has been covered up, so no one believes that it has actually even happened, and she knows that it has happened, and so she goes on a quest to solve the mystery of what happened to it and, and, and to return the art that has been stolen to its proper place. The young protagonist has to have their own agency, it's kind of considered a trope that all of these characters, like they're always orphans, you know? And so, you know, you, these days you try to avoid the whole orphan thing because it's, it's overdone. I understand why people do the orphan thing because it's like, oh, these pesky parents are always in the way. (laughs) And Uh, they are, they totally are. Yeah, they totally are. I mean, I do, I will admit freely, Beatrice's mother is dead. Right, I know. And, and her father, father is her fairly is neglectful. Well, he's he's <laughs> he's a yeah. Cuz one of one of the things I love about it, I've read it several times you now. At least, three times. at least three times. And I love it so much. And I totally agree with what Tiffany's saying about how, you know, these books can be so pleasurable for an adult too. Partly because I read a lot of books like this when I was a kid, you know, stories that have to do with art heists or staying overnight in a museum or something creepy happening with some strange mysterious old woman neighbor or something like that. And so it really felt like a return to my childhood to read it a little bit and a return to something very pure in terms of what I love in storytelling. But... (coughs) Bless you. I'm sorry, I'm having allergies. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I really love in the relationship between the father and the daughter in uh, Midnight in the Piazza is that Tiffany loved Colette when we were kids. And there's this real similarity between the relationship, (laughs) bless you, that, um, oh, which is Colette's character? Help me. Um, Claudine? Claudine, yes. Claudine has a similar relationship with her father, that Beatrice has with hers in Midnight in the Piazza. And I realized that after my second read, I was like, what, what is this sparking for me? Like some kind of me- like literary memory. It's, does- it's not overt. It's not like um, a direct facsimile of that relationship, but it's got echoes. It's got, it, it has some, some qualities that are similar. That's the first time I've heard you say that. And I have, I'm going to have to go back and reread those books because I haven't read them since I was about 19. That would be really interesting to me to see if I was influenced so strongly by something that I read 20 years ago. 
The father in, in the Claudine books is, he's very sweet. He's a little bit bumbling. bumbling. He's a little bit negligent, but like in a loving way. Yeah, he's um, absent-minded he's professor. Kind of. Beatrice's father is an absent-minded professor type. Precisely. As is Claudine's father and then she uh, Claudine has all of this sort of luxurious time by herself in those books again because her father is just sort of off with his books and so that was what was uh what kept coming up for me as I was reading Midnight in the Piazza was that's a similar feeling but then there's also this sort of gentleness and, and love between the father and the daughter that's that's very sweet even though it's definitely not a helicopter parent what does it mean to you to actually be a published author eventually well, it is a literal dream come true. It has been a dream of mine now, not for my whole life, but for several years. And I started working on this book a long time ago. <laughs> um, I started getting ideas for it in 2008. I started writing it in 2009. I did take several years off, particularly over the wedding planning period, which consumed me for over a year. Uh, I haven't been working on it for the past couple of years because, I mean, I, I have, but I've you know, just very specific revisions, let's say. But, you know, that's 10 years, almost 10 years. So uh, it's been a long road and it's incredibly exciting. And I hope that it's the first of several, if not many. So buy it, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they can't. We're hyping it and it's not till March 2018. Well, there is such a thing as pre-order, although although it's not on Amazon yet. You know, we will announce when it is, and I'm working on a new website that's going to have some content specific to the book, which could be fun for younger people. It could be fun for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly will be fun for us. Thank you. We're going to leave it there. We're going to do another one before you're gone. But until then, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And I'm Suzanne Morrison. Bye. Thanks for all the ways you support us. Give us a good rating on iTunes, maybe five stars if you like the show. It will help other people discover that we exist. Thank you. You're the best.